listeners, you're listening to another episode of Beckett's Babies. We're your hosts, Sarah Cho. And Sam Collier. And we are super excited to have Gwydion Sullivan here with us today on this episode. Gwydion is a writer, innovator, and arts advocate who serves as both the executive director of the Penn Faulkner Foundation and the chief architect and evangelist of the New Play Exchange for the National New Play Network. He's also a co-founder of The Welders, an award-winning playwrights collective in Washington, D.C. He's the author of several plays, and he has a Master of Arts in Poetry from the writing seminars at Johns Hopkins University. His forthcoming series, All Souls, is currently in post-production. Gwydion, welcome to Beckett's Babies. Thank you for having me. Welcome. We're so excited to get to talk to you um, about your work and the new play exchange. And we're going to start where we always start with your earliest memory. So what was your life like before theater? (laughs) Well, you know, as a writer, I have a long life before the theater. I really actually started writing in earnest and thinking of it as my life's calling when I was 14. That's awesome. Yeah. I wrote for uh, a public access television show when I was 14. Wow. Yeah. And then I I interviewed authors, and I did a second series about crime from a young person's perspective. Oh, my gosh. That's so cool. Then in college, I was a journalist. I sort of worked my way through college as a journalist uh, and paid, paid for what I could out of the meager earnings of a young journalist. Uh, And then I was, you know, I went to school to study poetry and I was an academic and I uh, thought of myself as a poet mainly. And all of this happened well before I realized that theater was where I was headed really all along in a lot of ways. Although I've kind of steamed through it in some ways in in recent years, but, uh, you know, theater is where I spent the longest time as a writer. Uh, but I think your question is really about my entire life, uh, right? My earliest memory mm-hmm. period. And the earliest memory period that I have, I was four and a half. And I was riding my big wheel down the street from my house. And I was reaching an intersection. And I saw another kid coming with a big wheel <laughs> and, and uh, in the other direction. And we neither of us knew how to stop. And we... <laughs> We crashed into each other, and um, that was my first friend, uh, David. <laughs> we we are still friends today, so that's many decades later. Uh, we lived around the corner from each other, um, and then later, I, my family moved, and we were two houses apart. And it was, you know, the beginning wow. of friendship. And what's his name? His name is David. David, and what is his area of expertise? Oh, he's is a, he also he's a, a lawyer. No, he's oh, a, lawyer. a lawyer. Yeah, yeah, patent lawyer. Um, that is, that's such a cool story. You're still friends. I'm a person who keeps and holds friends forever. Uh, I just, mm. I love people too much, and I, and I just can't stop caring. So my best friend in the world is someone I've known 45 years. I've known him since I was six, a couple of years after that. Uh, And Andrew is a nurse in Oakland. And he and I speak two, three times a week and text almost every day. And, um, you know, yeah, I'm lucky. I'm lucky. Um, So 
to go back to what you were saying, like when was that moment when you came to theater? Like what were you, were you auditioning for something or were you like submitted? When, when did that happen? You know, it's funny. I I sort of danced around theater a lot until I realized it was where I belonged. So in high school, I ran the light board for all the productions just to be Mm -hmm. close to theater because I found it so exciting and really, even even younger than that, when I was in elementary school, my father was in a few musicals, and I just watching him play Bill Sykes and Oliver, and just you know, <laughs> marveling at his ability to become somebody else and his sort of rich, rich baritone voice, um, and just this this amazing expressive thing he would do when he would get on stage or when he would sing just in the house. Uh, and then, you know, in college, I just, even though I was studying poetry, I just thought theater is so cool and I want to be around it. So I was at Northwestern and, you know, the luminaries I was surrounded by, the people who are huge theatrical stars today were just people I made plays with back in the day. And I, you know, I was a technical director or a lighting designer or a scenic charge or whatever I could do just to get around theater, mostly because I thought it was fun, but I never thought gee, this impulse I have to write could be part of this world too. I just, it never mm-hmm. occurred to me until many, many years later. I don't even remember how old I was, maybe in my early 30s, having paraded through all the genres and feeling like none of them quite fit. I gave up writing for two years. I sort of went to a desert island and said, I'm going to join a dot-com for a couple of years and try and get Whoa. rid and 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 make a lot of money and then i would have all the time in the world to figure it out so i did that i gave up two years of my life to a dot-com i learned everything there was to learn about technology and after 70 million dollars were spent (laughs) the dot-com failed and i had a little bit of a nest egg because i'd made a lot of money with no way to spend it i mean not a lot of money but enough that i could spend six months soul searching and in mm-hmm. that six months, I said, you know, the one genre I've never tried is playwriting. So let me give it a shot. And uh, I, I wrote a play. I started submitting it places. It started winning awards. It started getting attention. It it made me uh, realize that I was home. And, uh, and it was like all of my impulses toward first-person monologue, which weren't always comfortable in the sort of formal poetic world I was in. Mm-hmm. All my interest in taking fact, which is what a journalist is interested in, and aggrandizing it or ennobling it or making it larger, which is what a dramatist does. All those things came together in this one impulse to tell a story that moves in space uh, and that lives in bodies. Um, and so I was I felt like I was home. It's really cool to hear you talk about the connection between um journalism and playwriting because i just read your play the butcher which is inspired by a true story um and i'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the inspiration for that yeah the inspiration for that was this little like three inch article in the washington post about a a man in springfield virginia in 2006 i believe this is still the shadow of uh, 9-11 was very large over Washington, D.C. at the time still, over the country. 
and this yeah. man and the war in Iraq too. I yes, think. and the war in Iraq. Yes, all of that. Um, and this man walked into a halal butcher shop and um, cut off his, you know, distracted the butcher and cut off his own left hand, and then sort of anointed the shop with his blood. And he was very clear in saying, "I'm not a terrorist. I'm not a terrorist. I do this for Allah." And then he and his son, he was with his 18-year-old son at the time, he, the two of them were disappeared. And I, I'm using that verb correctly. They wow. were disappeared. They never uh, were seen again. Homeland Security took them off. Uh, and so it becomes this sort of mysterious incident. I mean, it's easy to sort of, as a, uh, you know, quote, rational, unquote, person to say, well, he must have been crazy or he must have been on drugs. Uh, but I would rather live with it as a kind of a religious mystery. What did he, what was he doing? Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and, and not try and understand it, but sit with it. So I did. And I, it became, uh, my play, the butcher, which sort of, sort of imagines what the two weeks after that were like for the butcher himself, his wife, uh, and, and, and a customer who in, you know, I don't know if there were, I, don't, I never found out who was in the shop at the time, but I imagined a customer who was in the shop, um, who happened to be an evangelical Christian and what did this do to her and, and her evangelical family. I was going to say, the truth is these, these play centers on these two couples, the, the Muslim, um, American couple on the one hand and, uh, this evangelical um, couple on the other hand, but in a lot of ways, in truth, they're really my grandparents on both sides. You know, oh. my on my mother's side, my parents, uh, her parents were immigrants uh, from uh, Europe, and they're religious in their own sort of old world way. And on my father's side, his parents were evangelical, and so. This is a family story for me, but it's really a story about how can we exist in a religiously polarized country? How can we find commonality instead of finding sharp differences? Um, you know, how can we find a kind of muddy middle where we all connect or, or, or even can we? Yeah, well, and I was really struck by... Um your play taking that event and and not even showing us the event itself, but showing us the kind of the reactions or how people move on from an event like that and and what happens to them and how they tell the story of that event um, and kind of turn it into meaning if they're able to turn it into meaning. Yeah, I really did not want to show the event because we yeah. just are so desensitized to extreme violence. Yeah. And uh, violence against brown bodies in particular, even self-inflicted violence. It just, that isn't the point. I really, this is why I really yeah. like, there's a television show, Broad Church, and I really love it. It's one, one crime at the beginning of a two-season story. And it really asks, how would an awful thing like this truly affect people? And how would their lives unfold and in unpredictable ways, how would they be knocked out of balance? Because uh, that's the that's where drama is. It's in the reaction, not in the violence. I think. Right. Mm. Absolutely. 
And I'm reminded of, um, I think I learned this in grad school, that the word obscene literally means in Greek off stage, uh-huh. that the ancient Greeks put extreme violence um, in the, the off stage part of the story. That is beautiful. I love that. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> Isn't that yeah. great? Yeah. Um, so, Gwen, you mentioned how you like to keep you like friends, keep them close. I'm curious to know if you have a, a favorite advice from your playwriting peers or instructors you've had in the past. You know, I never studied playwriting, so I don't have playwriting instructors. I have poetry instructors and they and writing yeah, or, and or any advice from that yeah well, you know they were experience. they were some of the i mean I, I studied with the greatest living poets i truly had an embarrassment of riches uh my undergraduate thesis advisor was a woman named mary kinsey who was also mary zimmerman's undergraduate advisor we had that in common whoa um and uh, my my graduate thesis advisor was a, a poet named alan grossman who's since passed away his Children are Lev Grossman and Austin Grossman, who you know as famous novelists. And yeah, the magicians. Yes, yes. Um, and you know that th- they taught me a ton. But I really, honestly, I think in, in the world of the theater, I mm-hmm. learned more than anything when I was co-founding the Welders from studying the ways of thinking. Uh, that came before us in the form of the um, the Workhouse Collective and 13P. I, mm-hmm. I think for me, my artistry has been this kind of hodgepodge of development from, you know, learning how to be uh, efficient as a journalist and learning how to be poetic and symbolic and learning rhythm and sound as a poet. But it was the the difficult task of living as an artist in 21st century America and finding a way to make space for that, for creativity and claim your own power. That was the most important things. These are the most important things I learned. And I learned them by thinking a lot with my co-founders about how the playwrights collectives before us, came into being and made their way in the world. Um, studying mm. the Workhouse Collective made me a sort of theatrical commie. Like, it, it, it taught me about being a comrade, being a co-producer, being an ally, standing up for your fellow artists, making things together, collaborating, achieving consensus, having difficult conversations in a productive way. Um, you know, just wat- watching that model Thinking about that model, embracing that model was everything to me. It was the great work of my life in many ways. I mean, that and the new play exchange. That's really beautiful and leads me directly into asking how did you come to the idea of the new play exchange and um, what is its origin story? You know, it's so easy when you're a man to say, well, I did this and I did that and put yourself in the center of every story. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to do that. I never want to do that around the New Play Exchange. Um, yes, I wrote a big manifesto in HowlRound that got a lot of attention. <laughs> but I 
truly could not have written that manifesto. And that's what people point out as where the New Play Exchange started. There's a HowlRound article in which I refer to something called the New Play Oracle. And I laid out the case for why the field needed it. And people refer to that as the origin of the New Play Exchange. But the true origin is a step before that. And it was conversations I had with other theater makers, largely on Twitter, but offline, in person, on Facebook, uh, you know, in the ether, about mm-hmm. the idea. So I, I truly believe and will say that I was simply channeling an idea that was out there already. That I was mm-hmm. putting down on paper what everyone was thinking and talking about. That it's an idea of the time that emerged from sort of the obvious collision of the internet and our and our analog art form. Uh, so I'm just the ch- I'm just the the channeler, and and now having built the thing, I'm now just the steward. I just have the position of being the steward of something that we all need and all rely on and all care about. Um, and, and so that was my luck. It was, it was luck. It was my good fortune that I had the privilege and the space in my life to sit and spend some ridiculous amount of hours writing a manifesto and that I had, you know, those two years running a dot com and building websites and understanding mm-hmm. the web so that I knew how to build a thing like this combined with my understanding of the theater. I'm just was like the right person in the right place at the right time to make it happen. But it's just, mm-hmm. I truly, I, I sincerely and deeply believe that if I hadn't been there, someone else would have been at some other time in the near future. Uh, it was, it was just, I feel like the new play exchange happened to me as much as I made it happen. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the first time I heard about this, so I don't know if you remember, but uh, year 2015, I was in Kennedy at the Kennedy Center uh, for the college festival, and you came as a speaker for one of the the groups, and you introduced New Play Exchange. I remember sitting there as you were talking about New Play Exchange. I was like, this this feels so fresh, innovative thinking about submission process. Mm-hmm. Like it, it kind of blew me away because of, I was, and I am hearing you talk about this. I was like, with your background in technology, like there, I just don't know how this could have ha- even happened. <laughs> like, um, because of just the, the information and the knowledge behind new play exchange was, it was so, for, I don't know, for me, just hearing it for the first time was like, felt felt groundbreaking in a way. But yeah, well, just now hearing you talk about it, it's kind of incredible. I'm I'm grateful. I do remember that. I do remember that conversation in the Russian lounge, actually, at the, at the Kennedy Center, which is one of my favorite rooms in Washington, D.C. Yeah, I mean, I think part of this is that this is who I am in my nature. I'm an innovator, and I like to look at a system and see how that system is functioning and ask how should it be functioning and then build a new system alongside the old one that people sort of migrate to because it's a better way. So, I mean, the same impulse that made the new play exchange is the same impulse that made the welders. Uh, You know, it's Mm -hmm. let's find a new way to do things. Let's find a new way to make art, to share our art, to connect around art. 
um, to support artists. This is this is all I've ever wanted to do in the world, um, and and it's why I call myself an innovator in my in the kind bio that you read at the top of the, the <laughs> because it's it, it's what I can, care about. Can you speak a little bit about um, what the what the mission of New Play Exchange is for? especially younger playwrights who might not have a page there yet, or they're just starting to search for playwrights um, and read their work. What do you see as, as the goal of NPX? So the, the, the new play exchange was born as a kind of upgrade for a low fidelity technology, which was the submission process. We have people on one side who have work to share, plays to share, scripts to share, and people on another side who need those scripts. And the mm-hmm. only technology we had to connect those people for 80 years, 90 years, was the submission process, <laughs> right? It was this lo-fi, yeah. print out your script and put it in an envelope and mail it, and then eventually you know, PDF your script and email it. But it was all one way. It was one group of people trying madly to get this document in front of this other group of people, the right segment of this group of people. And that technology, that methodology was failing. It had actually really failed by the time the new play exchange was born. It still lingers on a little Frankenstein like or zombie like, but it's a failure. It it's it it doesn't work. It tell us why it's a failure. Uh because the people on the one side are, you know, the, the side that we're on as writers don't have enough information about how to get their scripts to the right people. And the people on mm-hmm. the other side are thus besieged by scripts they don't want, which makes it harder for them to find the scripts they do want. Mm-hmm. So there's basically too much noise and not enough signal. So we said, you know, I said, we can, we can create a new paradigm, which is essentially this neutral territory, this, um, demilitarized zone between the two <laughs> sides of this equation. And really, by the way, people live on both sides. I, I live on both. Right. Um, yes. So we, we created this sort of safe space, this neutral territory where a writer could put work and, that, and thus feel like they had done what they needed to do to put it out in the world and satisfy that urge to share and then uh, the same place is the place that that producers go to find work, and it gives them all the tools they need to cut through the noise to find the signal, to find the scripts they're looking for, by the people they're looking for, um, and it just so it grew from that impulse. And the the vision we have for the next three to five years of the new play exchange is huge. Like you think it's big now, but we're about to embark on some massive, massive upgrades um that are really going to be incredible (laughs) can you tell us more (laughs) well i could but then no uh you know (laughs) i'm i'm not yet at liberty to announce too much of what we're going to do um i'm waiting we're waiting for a big funding decision um that will help us carry through a significant transformation we have to undertake in the next in the next two years or so actually yeah about two years Mm -hmm. um basically the technology platform on which the new play exchange is built is becoming obsolete so we've got to get it off and in getting it off onto a new platform that will be sort of more evergreen 
we will also be adding significant new features that will, you know, I'll point to certain groups that will have a new home in the new play exchange. Musical theater writers will be more welcome than ever, um, as will devising artists uh, and translators from the sort of writing perspective. Um, actors will have a new window into the new play exchange than they've ever had. Wow. And then um, um, uh, theaters working at a sort of higher level will have more of a home than they ever had before. Um, I mean, significant. So right now, literally, there's, oh, I don't know, 20, some, maybe 20,000 individual users for the new play exchange and um, 315,000 students and faculty members now have access as well. Wow. So imagine sort of dwarfing those numbers in the next three years. Um, and that's, you know, that's incredible. It's incredible. Never. It, yeah. When we set out to build the new play exchange, we set a goal of signing up 432 users in the first year. Uh, we thought that would be, you know, that would be a reasonable goal. We did that in the first two weeks. Wow. So it's really been, <laughs> it's been kind of a rocket to the moon um, the whole way. My mind is blown right now. <laughs> I'm just like, this is so incredible. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for telling the world about it. It really helps. I mean, really what I, per, my, like where I get hooked in personally to the new play exchange is making sure that it and the, and participation in the theater are accessible to everyone. Like I want to lower barriers mm -hmm. to participation. I want to be as generous and as open and as welcoming and as inclusive as I can. And, and, the more we tell the world to make sure that young writers know we're here and know that um, this is a place of that they belong, the better we succeed. And I, I will tell you this, there's a couple things I'm really very, there's one thing I'm really very proud of about the new play exchange. And that's that from, from the get go, from the very first day, um, uh, the gender representation in the new play exchange has been, uh, there's been parody. And I want to be very careful and not mm -hmm. say 50 50 because I think that leaves out our non binary friends. But the, the gender spectrum mm -hmm. is, is fairly represented and has been uh, in the New Play Exchange all along from the get go. Where we, would, where we keep working super hard to do better is on the area of race and ethnicity. So, you know, in the beginning, we about, I want to say 18% of the writers were people of color, and this is all self-identified data. People uh, record their own, um, the ways they identify in the new play exchange. Um, so we've worked hard to get that number higher. We're just over now 27% uh, people of color from 18, but we want to hit, you know, 40. We want to reflect the population of at least the United States. And the more we become international, we want to reflect the international population as well. So especially want to encourage folks of color, artists of color to know that they're welcome and desired and have a place. And how do you do that? What strategies do you have for, um, for well, making that happen? saying this right on a podcast to the world is one. <laughs> um, I, I say it anywhere I speak and everywhere I go. And I ask, you know, I, um, I, I ask folks to spread the word. I spread the word. Um, we do a lot on our homepage to highlight the diversity of voices in the new play exchange at the 
moment we're speaking, there's a list of Caribbean writers on the homepage of the mm-hmm. exchange. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's we, we are all healthier when we live in a culturally diverse world. When there are more stories that are accessible to us, and when every voice is part of every cultural conversation. So, it's not about excluding traditional voices. It's about expanding the range of what people know is there. So, um, you know, we're trying to, yeah, we're trying to make sure that we're representing the full range of those voices. So before we shift gears to glistens, um, I'm going to, sorry, Sam, I'm going to ask the final question. (laughs) So what advice uh, would you give to our listeners who want to think outside the box of what playwriting could be, you know, like I feel like you really push the boundaries of play submissions and how we could share our work. So for those people who are, how can we like use our talents or to like think bigger? Uh, we, re- first of all, we absolutely have to, right. Our form will become letterpress printing. I love letterpress <laughs> printing. Or- for the record, I do too. I mean, I actually apprenticed myself. To, <laughs> I spent a month sleeping on the floor of a print shop. Oh my god! Literally, when I was twenty-five, to study at the feet of this true master, wow. uh, Michael Kaler, in Chestertown, Maryland. Mike, shout out to to Michael Kaler if he's listening. Um, I mean, but it's a it's an antiquated art form. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, or actually, maybe the best case is the, that we become classical music. Mm which is to say relevant but for an increasingly small rarefied and uh, you know group of participants or right. cultural consumers so we desperately need to reinvent and open up and expand possibilities for theater my own recent work um aside from my my film project at the moment is in immersive participatory performance experiences because i just this is people want to do theater. They don't want to mm-hmm. watch it. Mm-hmm. I, I think, or at least the people I care about <laughs> want to do theater and participate in it and not just sit back and consume it the way you would consume something off a tablet on Netflix. Um, yeah. So we want to give people chances to find themselves and express themselves and make. So I just, my encouragement to young theater artists is to say, just don't accept what they tell you in college theater is. Decide for yourself what it is. Use it to change the world. Use it to engage human beings, real human beings. The person who picks up your garbage, the person who serves you lunch at the cafeteria you go to, or the, the you know, the person who lives next door to mm-hmm. you. Don't. It should not be rarefied. It should not be $85 a ticket. It should be uh, as accessible as your corner pub. Um, and, uh, you know, it should, you know, escape rooms. And, <laughs> uh, you know, that's sort of, think about that as a paradigm as much as you think about, sorry. <laughs> um, Do you think Beckett was the escape room artist of his time? I'll have to ponder this. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Yeah. No, I think that's really true. And I think one of the, maybe, maybe this was unintended, I don't know, but one of the um, really delightful things about New Play Exchange is it allows all of us playwrights to see 
how other people's plays look on the page. And so for someone like me who lives in rural Maine and doesn't get to go see a lot of new work um, in performance, I can get on and read the plays of people who are writing, you know, truly innovative things right now. And I can go, you know, maybe I can't see a performance, but when you see a performance, you don't get to see what it looks like on the page. And I can see that right away. And so um, I think that's really cool. Yeah, I love that. Uh, Thank you for sharing that. I love hearing how people use the new play exchange. And that's, that's terrific. Thank you. Well, and you mentioned actors, and I have met a number of actors in the past few months who use it to find monologues or... And that's actually, I'll tip my hand a little bit and say that that's actually (laughs) one to enable um, in a new way. Really, I I guess I've talked about this enough publicly that I can say we want to build a way for actors to search for monologues that fit who they are, their voices that match the durations they're looking for. I need a 60 second. I need a 90 second that, um, that match the tones of the plays they're auditioning for. So if they're auditioning for a comedy, they want a comedy. Um, and then actually purchase those monologues directly from playwrights. Wow. Uh, wow. So that playwrights. You say purchase and playwrights ears perk up. Yeah, exactly. Right. Oh so yeah, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to provide a sort of, because right now, if you want monologues, what do you do? You might ask your friends for plays. You read plays. You got to read the whole play. You still don't know. And you might find a character who's kind of like 10 years older than you or 10 years younger or maybe um, Puerto Rican and you're Colombian and you would rather have a Colombian character or the character you're auditioning for is Colombian. So you want a Colombian character. You know, you want to really dig yeah. into exactly what you want and micro slice it. And we want to make that possible, you know, the, the, the lo-fi technology we have right now is collections of monologues mm-hmm. that are published, right? And you, yeah. <laughs> you can buy monologues for women over 50. or And it's like, it's still so generic. Um, and it's probably yeah. so white most of the time too, right? So it's a, how can we make this um, truly useful for the people who need Incredible. it? Incredible. Wow. So I guess... Before we move on to Glistens, where can our listeners find you? Uh, Sullivan.com is the place to find me nice. uh, sort of in, in the total totality of who I am. But you got to know how to spell my last name. <laughs> uh, we'll make sure to link it to our show notes and uh, we'll make sure to share that on our feed. I've also got a new play exchange profile. You can find Excellent. Well. <laughs> yeah, I think that's where Sam yeah. wrote your play. So. Oh yeah, yeah. Go, go yeah. Back. Yes. there you go. And uh, I'm on Twitter and accessible there. If anyone wants to find me, I try to make myself as findable awesome. as I can. Well, shall we move into glistens? So every episode, we share something from the week that has caught our attention or that we discovered and really loved. Um, so, Gwydion, you're our guest. So why don't you go first? Oh, really? How special. <laughs> Well, uh, I feel like I've had a lot of things on my mind lately. I just, uh, I, I'm a Tony voter, so I see a lot of plays on Broadway. Which is oh. So, but I realize that it's sort of the opposite of everything I've just said in a lot of ways. But um, I, I happened to see Slave play this past week. 
Oh God, I'm so jealous. Yeah, it's really, truly incredible, and and it's so hard, and so difficult, and so demanding. It's a, it's an inspired production of a truly difficult piece of theater. That's I I can hardly believe it's on Broadway. Um, uh, you know, it it took a young producer, I think, and somebody with vision to make it happen. Um, it's, I think we all need to reckon with what's happening there. And I don't, um, yeah, it doesn't go down easy. It requires a lot of you as an audience member. Uh, and it may not be everyone's mm -hmm. cup of tea, uh, or what everyone needs in this present moment for, for the people who need it. I think it's necessary and necessary is always my mm -hmm. highest compliment. Wow. Cool. How about you, Sarah? <sighs> Let's see. Um, I want to say, so this past week I started a new job and it's been in just a lot, <laughs> but like, it's just, but it's also been really incredible. So this new company that I work for or an organization, it's a nonprofit called Inside Out Writers, where uh, we bring writers of, of all genres to come and teach creative writing to our youth in the juvenile halls and to sort of like just teach writing also all different kinds of writing so I'm help my job is sort of help coordinate that and so it's been a lot of challenges in terms of like like learning about prison systems and the politics and all this information that I just like never knew mm -hmm. as an outsider. You just, I just did not know anything. And so to kind of go head on and just learn and, and take it all in and, and with my background in PR too, and then help coordinating. And so it's been incredible. It's like hard, challenging, but really I'm like so happy that I'm like back in the world of just writers again, because <laughs> I, like just being surrounded by writers yeah. and talking to mm -hmm. writers about writing and teaching. So it's just, it's been like incredible and I'm like really thankful for the opportunity and I'm just excited about what's to come. And yeah. What age are the kids um, working? So I think they're, they're between like 12, 13 to 25. Sort of that's the, yeah. Wow. And so, yeah. um, yeah. So it's been, cool. Really interesting. Yeah. What's your Sam? Um, well, my lesson is I just went to the Modern Works Festival at Urbanite Theater down in Sarasota, Florida. And it's a festival of new plays by women. And I highly recommend it um, for people to apply next year. I just had such a great time. Um, I saw plays by Carrie Krim and Marjorie Muller, both of which were really beautiful, thoughtful, smart plays, um, and got to work with incredibly talented people and just had a great time. So Urbanite Theater, it's a little theater in Florida. It's very new. It's only a couple years old. They're doing really exciting work. And if anybody lives in Florida, I encourage you to check it out. Yay. Hey. And that's our show. And that's our show. Glidian, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, I'm so glad we had this time. Thank you so much. 
So thank you so much for listening to this episode with Gwydi and Sullivan. Yeah, I hope uh, you enjoyed it as much as we interviewed him. Like it was incredible to just hear his experience and kind of like what, how these ideas came into fruition that is now New Play Exchange. Like I thought that was incredible yeah. to hear. Um, so be on the lookout, you guys. Gwydian has a, a film coming out uh, for all souls. Uh, you can learn more about it at forallsouls.com. And we'll make sure to link that out on our show notes, as well as just additional information about this wonderful human being that we got a chance to talk to. Yeah. And we also wanted to let you know that one of our previous guests, Tanuja Jagernoth, has an upcoming event in Chicago. So for those of you who live in Chicago, you should check it out. It's called Creating a World Beyond Racism and Fascism, and it's on November 7th at 6 p.m. at the City Bureau. It's going to be um, a discussion. I think it sounds really cool, and I wish I could go. Yeah. So if you're interested in that, be sure to check it out. Just isn't this amazing, Sam? Like playwrights making things happen. Like, like come it on. It really is. It's, I know. It's remarkable. Because we're the... Um, creative and innovative leaders of the culture i don't know i just made that up of, of the free world <laughs> uh yeah yeah exactly yeah. uh-huh um what else oh we want to thank our listeners for the emails um we're gonna try to figure out how we can put all these amazing comments uh thoughts into an episode so we'll figure that out together <laughs> we'll figure it out um yeah. so because we want to share the feedback that we received in its own episode i think and then we'll we're gonna sh- share we're gonna share we're a bunch of sharers <laughs> <laughs> keep yeah keep telling us what you think we love it um okay so it's time for an announcement the winner of our beckett bio challenge for listeners um was bonnie metzger who wrote the following alternative bio for samuel beckett if he were alive today and having to write bios before before you say before i share yes there were millions of submissions (laughs) that we had to go through so many that we had to comb through it was it took us oh my gosh like i don't know i want to say solid three weeks of no sleep <laughs> to comb through and we we came down to bonnie's and sam will now share here it is i do nothing i smoke and drink pints alone nothing alone and the man comes every day i write for nothing and live here writing in this city another paris a queer one the man comes he never comes so congratulations bonnie you will have that bio typed up on the Beckett's Babies typewriter. Congratulations. Congratulations. Um, (laughs) You did it. And uh, yeah. So before we end our show, anything new, Sam, before we want our listeners to know? Um, I don't know. (laughs) You're like, what? (laughs) What is this? (laughs) I'm kind of off guard. Uh, Um, 
well, I only say this because um, in case listeners you don't know, but a lot of our episodes we you know we pre-record sometimes, and you know our life uh, we are going through things or like some crazy things <laughs> happen to us and like updates and I'm not saying crazy things have happened to me, but I think I just want to share that right now in this moment in my life I'm going through this weird uh, transition of like creative things and work yeah um like right now i'm balancing two part-time jobs uh i'm going from one sketch team to another sketch team with the theater i'm part of um and it's kind of crazy hectic i a lot of like limited number of sleeps i've had i think hours of sleep and it's been hard to write honestly other than the sketch that I have to write, but, and I just want y'all listeners to know that I'm okay. I feel fine. Yeah. And, and we all go through times like that. I think where we're not writing as much. So, um, I think it's good to talk about it because that's yeah. real. Yeah. And that's all I wanted to share. I just want to, here's what's going on in my life. That's oh, yes. a similar kind of a thing. Last night I got back from the woods with my dog and found no less than five ticks crawling around me him my kitchen floor um yeah ticks oh that's what i'm thinking about that's disgusting yep you're welcome keep that to yourself Sam. <laughs> <laughs> oh, i'm just kidding it's a dangerous it's maine is a dangerous place so if I get Lyme disease, I'll let you know. All right. Well, that was our episode. Thank you all for listening <laughs> again. Um, we appreciate you all, listeners. Bye.